gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So here's the situation. Uh, this morning, I did a podcast, that normal scheduled thing, was in the books for a couple of weeks with my friend John Ward, who's got a new book out. Um, and podcast went great. And then we found out afterwards uh, that it turns out the dispatch is now sufficiently of such scale that no one thought that the left hand never told the right hand that. Um, uh, Steve Hayes had recorded the dispatch podcast with John Ward yesterday. <laughs> and so we didn't want to release two podcasts with the same author about the same book, basically on the same day, uh, for reasons that I, I don't feel like I'm obliged to get into too much detail about. It just sort of seems like an obvious thing. And so while I was recording a new intro, trying to explain this to people for the recorded remnant, um, Adam suggested, Hey, maybe we just put together a podcast real quick. So I was like, well, who can we get quick? Who's good. That doesn't need a lot of prep and wouldn't be intimidated by basically being available right now. So I first texted Kevin Williamson saying, Hey, are you there? And he didn't respond. So then I texted, uh, Charles CW cook, uh, my former colleague at national review and he was game, but he is in a hotel room with merely his phone. So the audio may not be what uh, we would normally like and certainly not up to an audiophile of Charles's stature um, would normally submit to because he's got his own rig at home. But I'm very grateful to Charles for, um, for signing in and um, welcome back to The Remnant. Thank you. What you're saying, Jonah, in effect, is that I'm a cheap date. At any moment, you can just text me and wherever I am in the world. I will say, yes, I'm happy to come on your podcast. But I'm pleased you added Kevin in too, because that meant that Mad Dog's an Englishman was probably meant to be, right? That's exactly right. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think you, the way you should interpret this is that I hold you in such, such high esteem. Because <laughs> um, I will tell you, I went through some other, we discussed some other names, like, no, nah, can't talk to him, don't want to talk to him, uh, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But, like, I, I'm always delighted to talk to, to Charles, and I'm always delighted to talk to Kevin. and. Um, I am perfectly happy with, uh, being the, uh, uh, officiator at a reunion of Mad Dog and Englishman. If you guys ever want to, you know, take over the remnant, that would be fine by me. Absolutely. You can sit in the middle and throw tomatoes in both directions. I think that's a good idea. I'd have to figure out, like, that's a good place to start. Like, what are things that you guys actually profoundly disagree upon? Well, I don't think there's a lot politically that we profoundly disagree upon. One thing that did come up in our 500 episodes of the podcast was that I really love sports and Kevin could not care less about sports. So there's no sports talk at any point on Mad Dogs and Englishmen because I'm the sort of person who could watch a snail race and get really invested in it and start asking questions about the history and the traditions. And Kevin could go to the Super Bowl in the best seats and watch the greatest game that's ever been played and sort of say, eh. So that's one thing we don't have in common. But yeah, I mean, one of the complaints about Mad Dogs over that time was that we agreed too much, which we probably did. Yeah, I, I, I'm... There, I, I'm, a, I'm of two minds of that kind of thing. I get grief from people saying I don't have enough people that I disagree with on the podcast. And, um, and at the margins, I think that's right. Um, uh, it would be good to mix it up a little bit more with some people, but at the same time, it's supposed to be, um, a conversation. 
and not necessarily um, a shout show kind of thing. And some of it just has to do with the amount of preparation that you have to do and mental, you know, sort of preparation you have to do to like really go at people who you profoundly disagree with is just something that schedule wise, it sometimes just feels like a lift. Um, but I should do more of it and I, and I will. But I, I think there's something to be said you know, even the liberals I have on, which I have quite often, you know, it's, I, I try to find things that we can actually agree on rather than things that we're going to get into like big honking arguments about. But anyway, be that as it may. Um, so I was just, I listened to, I guess the first half of the latest editors podcast and you guys were talking about, because you had to, um, the shooting in Nashville. Um, um, and I share a lot of your views, but I also share the sort of basic exasperation with the fact that it's, there's a certain, one of the things that makes these events so evil is the pointlessness of debating of the, of the debates that follow from them. Um, it just feel, and that makes it all the more frustrating because it is a natural human compulsion to want to do something to prevent these kinds of things. But there really isn't anything obvious that is, doable that would actually do something um you know do you, where do you come down on that i think that's exactly right for a couple of reasons let's start with guns i have strong views on the second amendment as you know and by this point as your audience probably knows as well that is to say if we were having a meaningful conversation about gun control if the consequences of any potential gun control measures were real, I would come down on one side. And that side would be the pro-Second Amendment position. It is true at the same time that the debate over gun control in the United States is largely academic at this point. It's not academic in the sense that the government couldn't pass all sorts of laws that we need enforcing. It's not academic in the sense that there would be constitutional implications and that individuals would see changes in the way they interacted with the law. But you cannot stop mass shootings with legislation in a country that has nearly half a billion guns in circulation already. That ship has sailed. In that respect, I think that gun control is largely irrelevant to the debate over mass shootings. The second reason you can't stop mass shootings is that they are especially given that there are that many guns in circulation, intrinsically impossible to predict. The analogy, the comparison I drew on the editor's podcast was with trying to fight more quotidian forms of crime. We actually do a fairly good job in this country if we want to, which often we don't, at taking on a specific problem. For example... Islamic terrorism or crime down on the intersection of 31st and Johnson Street. We can expand resources, we can change tactics, we can raise awareness because we, by and large, know where to look. That isn't true with mass shootings. That's the whole problem with mass shootings. That's why it is so depressing. You have an enormous country with 330 million people who are in not just the Second Amendment respect, but in so many respects, incredibly free. I often point this out to my English friends. It's not just if you were to go after the guns that you would have to violate 
Americans' expectations of the Second Amendment and the 45 state constitutions that echo it, you would have to go after all sorts of other amendments that don't exist in other countries. For example, you would have to have a much more lenient attitude towards uh, searching homes without a warrant. You would have to have a much more lenient attitude toward prosecuting people based on their speech or their ideology. Or their association. Yeah, or their association, and we don't have that. So we have this massive continental country full of 500 million guns, full of 330 million people who are all much freer than in most countries. And at no point do we have any idea where the next one is going to happen. That is basically impossible to superintend even if you want to. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I mean, and I hate this calculation, but if we're going to be realists about it, there's the problem of if you decided that you were just going to go on some Australian-style gun confiscation program, odds are, and I'm not, you know, we, we, I'm just being descriptive here, but sure. odds are that that would lead to a lot more deaths right. than, um, uh, than the current death toll of mass shootings. And that's a grim thing to talk about. And I am not necessarily, I mean, I, I know part of the second amendment is the right to rebellion and res- resist the government and all of that. But so one can, one could be, one can make arguments saying it's, justified if the government decided to to violate the second amendment without repealing it first to resist that with violence and being armed or one could say that was a horrible unconscionable um indefensible approach to gun confiscation whichever normative moral position you take it still leaves the reality of it that there just be a ton of people who would say you know from my cold dead hands And that would be socially destabilizing in all sorts of ways. I think you're exactly right. I don't think there is anything wrong with you pointing that out. I would add to it that it would also, and this would matter in other areas that were not directly related to gun confiscation, destroy the trust between the police and local authorities and the citizenry in massive, massive swathes of the country. The police officer who you know, because you went to high school with him, in your town in Kansas, who was at your brother's wedding, would suddenly be the guy who would have to knock on the door, the guy who was responsible for enforcing these new laws. And all of a sudden, when he comes around and says, hey, have you seen Mary recently? She's missing. Well, maybe you're a little less helpful. But, you know, this isn't just a right-wing thing. The, the, uh, descriptively... The problem here is both on the right and the left. And I say problem not because I think there's anything wrong with resisting new laws. But there is a lack of appetite to deal with this on both sides. The right does not want to give up its firearms. And I include myself within that. I don't think it will work and I don't think it should work. And I will happily own that. The left does not want to enforce many of the laws that it passes. This is increasingly true. There is a paradox here. Progressives increasingly talk about more draconian gun control measures, banning certain sorts of rifles or magazines, uh, changing the rules around carry, while electing and deliberately electing prosecutors and attorneys general who say while they're running for office 
that they are worried about the disparate impact of prosecutions and that they're going to go soft when dealing with them. We're seeing this in New York. I'm not wild about this because I think many of New York's gun control laws are unconstitutional. But New York has actually been a good counter-argument to one of the criticisms that Kevin Williamson, we mentioned him earlier, has made of, say, Chicago, where they have all sorts of laws, but they just don't enforce them. For example, they have laws against straw purchasing, but they don't enforce them. New York did enforce its gun laws for a long time. I think some of those gun laws are incompatible with the Second Amendment, but at least New York was consistent. It passed them and it prosecuted them. And now it's not. Well, what's the point? What's the point in passing laws if you have an institutional objection to the consequences of prosecuting those laws? Another area of this, for example, is mental health. There is a general agreement, perhaps not in the media, but in the country at large, that one of the problems we're dealing with here is mental health. Certainly that is implicit in some of the ideas that we hear as to how we can fix this. Every time Chris Murphy says that we need to enhance background checks, he is in part talking about preventing people who have mental health issues from getting hold of firearms. Again, red flag laws, popular on the left, less popular on the right. Red flag laws are designed to allow the authorities to take away from people who are mentally ill firearms that they already possess. Okay, but what if there is a general predisposition against declaring people mentally ill in the first place, especially if I may say, in the area of transgender individuals. Now, this shooter in Nashville was by her own parents' account, unqualified to own firearms. But do you think that in many cases, the Christian parents of a dissatisfied transgender adult would be respected on the left if they said, we think she's crazy. So I, I think this is a really interesting one. You have the people on the right who are open about their dissatisfaction with gun control. They openly and explicitly and honestly oppose it. They say, I don't want it. And then you have people on the left who want it in theory, but are opposed in practice to the mechanisms that would be necessary to enforce it. And I'll just finish by saying this is actually what separates the United States from, say, Britain. We hear about Britain, we hear about Australia. Neither of those countries have the same civil libertarian impulse on left and on right that makes it difficult to affect gun control. There is no great pro-crazy uh, people <laughs> lobby in Britain, and there is no pro-gun rights lobby in Britain either. And when you lose both of those, and you don't have a robust Fourth Amendment, and you don't have a robust Fifth Amendment, and you're not especially worried about the First Amendment either, well, then you can do gun control. So, and I feel like the last time I had you on, I probably asked you the same question. Let's, I mean, just one added problem with, with stopping mass murderers like this is that you're right. It's a lot like trying to stop other kinds of crime. It's, but like rape, which is an absolutely heinous crime that and rapists should go to jail for long periods of time. Um, uh, at least the punishment is a deterrence at the margins for the behavior. The problem with most of these mass murderers is they intend to die. And when you intend to die, what is the 
you know, uh, the deterrence <laughs> for stopping this. It's like, you know, you can't say, well, if, if, if you don't manage to get killed in a hail of bullets, you'll go to jail for a long time. They know that. Um, but that's the whole point is, is that it's this, it's, it's, it's this essentially this, this suicide pact that they make. Um, and if it is very, very difficult to prevent people who are from doing something, if they are willing to die in the process. I don't have a good answer for that. And I'm not going to pretend that I do. I do think this is one reason that people who are more friendly toward the second amendment suggest that we harden our targets. I don't think that is an entirely unfair observation given the status quo. If you look back to the shooter in Santa Monica and his manifesto, I think it was 2015, he said that he had originally planned to hit, I believe, a Halloween party, but he had noticed that it was full of cops and so he would be shot the moment he drew his gun. If you look back to the shooter at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. That was originally perceived to be an attack on LGBT people, but in fact, he had wanted to hit Disney World, Disney Springs, which is the shopping area, but had gone there to scope it out and had recognized that it was teeming with security and cops. I believe in this case, at least according to early police reports, the shooter had not intended to target that school, but looked elsewhere but it found more security. You're absolutely right. The problem is, if you want to die, there's not much people can do, except stop you carrying out the attack in the first place. And I think in this respect, it is similar to terrorism. You cannot stop what happened on 9-11 if the people flying the plane are willing to die, but you can try and stop them getting on the plane in the first place. And there is, it seems, in some cases, a rational calculation and that calculation is, before I die, can I do what it is that I'm trying to do? And the more you harden the target, the more you make that difficult. But of course, that is marginal. That's not a silver bullet, if you'll forgive the expression. And it's not going to solve most of these cases. And it suffers from the same problem, which is that you just don't know where people are going to do this. And... Also, if you harden target A, then target B becomes relatively more attractive. It's 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 a very very hard issue. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and part of the answer, which I hate, and I'm pretty sure you do too, is 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 accepting this as a reality, at least for the time being. You know, I, I tend to think that this is a kind of social contagion, and you know, there was, you know, John Podoritz recently made this point about there was this huge. And fad is a is a minimizing word, but there was this huge fad in um, assassination attempts from the late sixties, you know, straight through the seventies, and and then it just seemed to go away. And um, you know, it is entirely possible that this era that was essentially ushered in by Columbine could end. But it, what cultural alchemy is required to make that happen, I do not know, nor does anybody else. And in the meantime, if you are responsible for a specific institution, your responsibility is for that institution, you know? And so you're, you're going to target harden your institution and you're going to think it's terrible that some other institution didn't target harden. But, um, you know, like if I still had a kid at 
uh, grade school, I would ask them, you know, what are your, your procedures? Even though I know it's the odds of it actually afflicting a specific school are infinitesimally small, you know, we care a hundred percent about the hundred percent of children in the world who belong to us. Yeah. And so you're going to ask those questions and, and the institutions that have answers to those questions are going to be, you know, that they're going to be some subset of people who reward those institutions with the, the, the in loco parentis function for their kids. Yes. And of course that's precisely what I would do and have done. May I say the thing on your podcast, Jonah, that I'm going to get angry emails for saying, but that I think is important nevertheless. This is a horrible problem, and it is a problem that the United States has more than pretty much every country in the world, and it is worth taking seriously, and I'm in no way suggesting otherwise. But we also ought to recognize that this is extremely rare. And that isn't to say that it doesn't play an outsized role in the public imagination or shouldn't, as it plays an outsized role in my imagination as a parent. But if you were allocating resources to deal with societal problems, as harrowing as this is, this would not be at the top because you are about as likely to be caught in a mass shooting as you are to be struck by lightning. The number of deaths that occur in this fashion every year in the United States is about equivalent to the number of deaths that occur on farms where people are engulfed by grain. Again, I'm not downplaying it. I understand why it matters, and I would love to stop it too, although I don't know how to do it. But we would get a greater bang for our buck if we improved the safety of school buses we would get a greater bang for our buck if we trained more people how to swim at school. And I am a little bit alarmed by the successful campaign to make it seem as if this is more frequent than it is. Once again, not because this doesn't matter, but because it's important to understand what is true. Pretty much every piece now that I read on this quotes this organization called the Gun Violence Archive, which massively, dramatically, deliberately overstates the number of mass shootings in the United States. I'm sure you've seen this too. You logged on, what is it, March 28th, and you will have read on CNN and the New York Times that there have already been 200 mass shootings in the United States this year. This is not true. At least this is not true by the normal definition of that term, a definition that was really well outlined in the New York Times a few years ago by a writer at Mother Jones who pointed out that we have to stick to the definition that we have traditionally used, which is the FBI's, rather than include, say, a gang shooting where the shooter has one foot on school property or a shooting that happened to be near a school bus or a family tragedy in which somebody kills his family and then himself or what you will. You cannot hope to address this problem if you lose sight of its nature. And I am a little bit worried that we are losing sight of its nature to the point at which we ignore other issues that might actually be easier to address. For example, crime in major cities, 
uh, and domestic violence and suicides, which make up, I think, now two-thirds of all gun deaths. When you hear killed by a gun, that almost always includes suicide. That's hard to fix too, but it's easier to fix than this. And I find it alarming that we spend all of our time and resources and political energy trying to solve this very real and very big problem that is really hard to solve and almost no time talking about the other areas which make up the lion's share of deaths and destroyed lives, which actually probably are easier to to address. Yeah, I mean, as a matter of reason reason and logic, I I find that very difficult to pick apart in any meaningful way. Um, and that should count for something. <laughs> but at the same time, which which you concede is, you know, there is there is a symbolic psychological component to this that makes it, I mean, I remember years ago um, at NRO, when I was running NRO, we ran a piece that gave a very sober statistical look at um, the statistics on lynching in the United States in the, uh, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. And the numbers don't fit necessarily the narrative of um, what we've been led to believe about the story of lynching in America. But the, and the author who was a friend of mine, um, actually pulled the piece because the headaches w- weren't worth it and it was a long story. But one of the chief criticisms was that it was um, not sufficiently cognizant of the cultural radioactivity of this heinous crime, which was lynching, right? And there's something about the, the uh, as a cultural psychological, sociological thing. There's something about mass shootings that um, ping different parts of our brains in ways that we just, that's part of the point of them. It's like, it's very much like terrorism. Terrorism is not really good at winning wars, but it's really good at messing with people's heads um, in all sorts of ways and and often counterproductive ways for the terrorist organizations. But um, having simply a rational... Uh, sort of uh, 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 cost-benefit risk assessment approach to it, I think is is probably a political dead letter. That doesn't mean you should abandon the argument because even pushing back on some of the hysteria has its own value. But by definition, you're just never going to get, you're never going to have people look at this in the same way that they look at uh, agricultural combine accidents because no. it's just a different thing. That, that's right. I, I think that analogy is both useful and not useful, though. A good analogy is terrorism. Nobody, I hope, after 9-11 said, well, most of the buildings in New York are still standing. Or 3,000 people, I said, percentage of the populations of New York and Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland is very small. As you say, the psychic shock was massive and it mattered. And that is true of school shootings. As I said, I am just as susceptible to the results as anyone else. I think where lynching is slightly different is that lynching in many parts of this country was genuinely permitted. Mm -hmm. 
there were concerted efforts for years to prevent federal anti-lynching legislation precisely because the Senate... Woodrow Wilson was a jackass. Yeah, but (laughs) it wasn't just objections to federal overreach or what you will. And I think the least convincing objections to federal overreach, given the existence of the 14th Amendment, it was that senators from Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Florida at the time understood that if you could kill federal anti-lynching legislation, then you would not see it replaced by state-level anti-lynching legislation because the states were fine with lynching. And in fact, many of the people in government said, well, that's justice. That is not true of mass shootings. And I understand that some of your left-leaning listeners will say, yes, it is. The NRA doesn't care. The NRA likes mass shootings. This is partisan brainworms nonsense. People who hold the view that we should not ban firearms do not believe that we all know how to fix this, but that they just don't want to. They believe that the proposals that are being advanced will do nothing except make people less free and violate the Constitution. That is a difference, I think, with lynching. There was a pro-lynching contingent within the U.S. Congress and in many states. There is no pro-mass shooting contingent. And I think the attempt to set it in its rightful place is more an attempt to say, let's do what we can with this, but not at the expense of saving other lives. And I understand that sounds <laughs> politically unpopular, but you have me on your podcast to say what I think, and that's what I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you 
can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's move on to other contentious issues. You are, I think it's fair to say, a, a, a zealous First Amendment defender in all of its regards, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and um, I share with you uh, the l- lamentable nature of the ACLU deciding that it is an organization in favor of progressive good things rather than um, actually defending free speech as a, I hate the phrase neutral rule, but um, a, a rule that applies equally to all forms of speech, you know, regardless of the, um, the subject matter. And even though I would have my disagreements with the ACLU on some of those free speech issues, I like having, I liked the fact that there was somebody there who was always willing to make those, let's call them Charles Cookian kind of arguments in favor of, of free speech. I'm curious. I mean, I know what you think in broad brushstrokes about the idiocy that transpired at um, um, Stanford, right? With the the ridiculous administrator saying the juice is not worth the squeeze, and by that they meant she meant that yeah, free speech is great, but if it leads to people being upset, it's really not worth it, right? I mean, that was the gist of it. Um, but. So I'm just trying to think this through. I, I was never the first, I was never the free speech voluptuary that a lot of my friends are, you know, you, David French and others. Um, um, in the case of, let's, let's, I'll put it in the case of, um, how to put this. Okay. So the, the standard argument, like with guns, right, is we have to protect these far outlier positions. I know you don't think they're necessarily all outlier positions, but politically they're outlier positions. Um, because if we protect these things on the frontiers of our freedoms, our core freedoms will be all the more protected, right? If, 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 the, the, if the threats are all out at this fort, way out in, you know, on the edge of, of Apache country, uh, then downtown St. Louis won't be touched by anything. And that's the argument for defending extreme speech, that's the argument for defending extreme expression. If you defend the extreme stuff, the core things that the First Amendment is really about will be protected. I think that argument no longer really works because we live in a society now where everyone loves defending sort of, uh, core, you know, uh, extreme things, pornography and, and this kind of stuff. But everyone's got ideas about how to regulate political speech, which is the thing the First Amendment is primarily about protecting. And, um, and so I find often, I find myself being put off by a lot of free speech arguments from the right and the left as basically pretextual special pleading for what they want, um, in a specific context, you know, Ted Cruz says, you know, him bullying dish into taking, uh, 
Newsmax back on its air um, was a huge triumph for free speech and the First Amendment. I don't see it. Um, it's a private company. Dish has free First Amendment rights. It had a business understanding that they thought Newsmax was not living up to their end of it and they wanted to drop it. And then you have the state, you have right-wing actors acting allegedly in the name of the First Amendment saying, no, 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 you got to take it back. Um, the hecklers at Stanford, um, they say, well, we have free speech rights too. And um, it seems to me that that argument is kind of self-defeating if the argument just boils down to whoever's the loudest can shout down somebody and that there are other values like an honor code, right? That, that you know, the example I keep harping on because it just drives me crazy how stupid it is, the girl who, or the student who allegedly said to the visiting judge, um, I hope your daughters get raped. Now, she has a right under the Constitution to say such a thing, but I have no problem with the idea of, of Stanford saying, you're expelled, you know, because that's not appropriate behavior at a university. If you want to ask a tough question, that's one thing. That's fine. If you want to write an op-ed, that's fine. Um, but you, we're training you here to be lawyers and officers of the court. Um, and this idea that, that all speech, anything goes, I find um, problematic. So I know that's pretty scattershot, but I figured I'd set you up to beat back all the different bric-a-brac. Well, I, I think it depends on the situation. I'll try and take all of your points in some coherent manner. Neither the case of Ted Cruz and Newsmax nor the case of Stanford and the mob were First Amendment questions. They were free speech as a cultural value questions. I don't think that Newsmax has any right to be on DISH. And as you'll know from my writing about Section 230, I think, in fact, it is imperative in a free society that outlets, whether they be DISH or National Review or Twitter, enjoy their own First Amendment rights. So on that one, I side with DISH and not Ted Cruz. On the Stanford question, Stanford is a private university. The First Amendment does not apply. The reason that it was so important in that case that the values of free speech prevailed is that Stanford had said they would. Stanford does not have to say that they will. Stanford is not bound by the First Amendment. But Stanford has itself adopted a free speech code and it should uphold it. If you make a promise, whether you are a business or a university or an individual, you should keep it. And this lady, Tyrion Steinbach, exists to undermine, is paid by Stanford to undermine the free speech policy that Stanford has itself adopted. And I think that is appalling. I think it is a good thing culturally, even though Stanford doesn't have to do so, that it has adopted a free speech policy because it is a university. And the purpose of a university is to permit debate, especially within a debating context, which is what the Federalist Society's event was. On actual First Amendment questions, I think I slightly disagree with your characterization as a matter of political tactics, it might in some cases be useful to fight the outlier cases. 
because as you say, if you're fighting the Indians, you don't have to fight in downtown St. Louis, or as many neocons used to say, if we're fighting them over here, we don't have to, over there, we don't have to fight them over here. But I don't think that is the primary argument for defending what you describe as outlier or extreme instances of speech. The reason that I at least defend extreme speech is that there is no reasonable or comprehensible rubric by which speech can be deemed by the government as virtuous or evil. I don't think that is true of individuals. I don't think you have an obligation to consider Mein Kampf and Hamlet to be equivalent. I don't think the DISH does or Stanford does or the Dispatch does either. But I do think the government does. I think when it comes to the superintendence of speech, the rules that we have put in place in the United States make a great deal of sense. And those rules under Brandenburg v. Ohio are that if you say something that is likely to incite imminent lawless action, you can be arrested. But pretty much in every other circumstance, you cannot. And we want that, I think, as a rule, not only because it fleshes out the First Amendment as it was intended, but because it prevents the courts from having to draw all manner of arbitrary lines that it is just not well equipped to draw. It prevents legislatures, which are full of elected and powerful individuals who have incentives, from drawing lines that they are not equipped to draw. And it leaves these questions to the people. And those people include the CEO of DISH, who said, we don't want to run Newsmax anymore. That's fine. Or Twitter says, we don't want Charles Cook on anymore. That's fine. Or Stanford, that in this case, said, we actually do want Judge Duncan to be able uh, to speak. So I, I, I know that one of the arguments that is made is let's fight them on the edges. But, but actually, my reason for it is, is much more practical. It's that I do not consider there to be any rational or provable case for the existence of hateful or extreme or marginalized speech. And I'll finish by pointing out that historically, some of the speech that was deemed outré, we now cherish. Abolitionism, for example, if you go back to the time of Frederick Douglass, the charge against him was that, sure, we're all for free speech, but have you heard what he's saying? If what he's saying in Boston is taken literally, not only will it rile people up, not only is it wrong, but it will lead to revolution and violence. Well, what do we think of it now? Yeah, no, look, I, I, I get the point. And I think that there's a, I guess part of my problem with that is that it is the, and again, this, these are disagreements really at the margins, because I think on most of the public policy actual examples, we'd come out pretty close to the same position. But, um, like, I personally don't think in, if if Brandenburg v. Ohio or New York Times v. Sullivan had been decided with the line moved five degrees further towards, uh, you know, uh, less maximalism, um, that we would become, therefore, an unfree country. I don't think, and I don't necessarily think that all the consequences of that would be 
um, all to the downside. Um, like personally, I think, I think you share this view that, that regardless of the legal part of it, the moral part of Donald Trump's rhetoric, um, on January 6th, um, and certainly his sort of stupid games of footsie with, uh, January 6th are condemnable and at, are just part of a long list of reasons why he's unfit <laughs> to be president of the United States. Yes. But if the law had been marginally more accommodating or the law is, were marginally more accommodating of the proposition that what he did was um, incitement, it does not, that would not trouble me. Now the law is what it is. I'm not arguing for us to go change it now, you know, or anything like that. But um, my hunch is, is that there are plenty of countries that you and I would describe as free countries, maybe not as free as, as we would necessarily like, but like as free countries, Canada, the UK, where a president or a politician who said the things that he said and encouraged the things that he encouraged um, could be criminally liable. And that thought does not conjure phantasms of Orwellian nightmares for the United States of America to me. I do think that's where we disagree. I think it's important that the line is where it is. And I will own that I am in some respects now doing what you suggested at the beginning, which is internally worrying that you move it five degrees and then it's another five degrees and then your baseline changes and suddenly you've moved 15 degrees. But I also think that forcing the speaker to have had a relationship with the people he is supposedly inspiring is important. I think the Brandenburg standard is brilliant because what it says is that you have to have been cognizant of what they would do and demonstrated. You have to say, not meet me in uh, the Staples parking lot and I will make a speech about the iniquities of the United States, as many of the founders did. <laughs> but meet me in the parking lot of Staples, bring your guns, and at 7 p.m. we go and kill the Jews. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between those propositions. In one case, you are criminalizing people who have made specific plans for criminality. And in the other case, you are criminalizing the speech of people who may well be innocent parties because it was misinterpreted by the crowd. And I, I can understand the arguments against it. I just understand why the court came down where it is. And I think it is the most workable free speech uh, rubric that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all fine and fair and, de and certainly defensible. Um, I think that part of my answer to that would be, and it's difficult without a real world case. And, and so the Trump, we can take the Trump case or we can take, um, you know, there's this couple in Colorado who are being charged with homis uh, negligent homicide for what their kid did in a mass shooting. And, um, but let's stick with Trump for just a second. I think that the distinction you're drawing is, is important and real, and I respect it. At the same time, I can see a case that 
that distinction should be recognized in the sentencing phase <laughs> rather than in the charging phase. Insofar as um, you can say, because part of the equation that I think you're leaving out here is foreseeableness. And um, if the reports that we learned are true, that Trump was, in fact, um, told that there were a lot of people in the crowd that were legitimate security problems. And he said, get rid of the magnetometers. I don't care. They're not here to hurt me. Yeah. Um, that adds to a state of mind and a foreseeableness of how this kind of thing could get crazily out of control. Um, and it seems to me that just simply saying, well, it's free speech unless he literally tells you time, place, and manner, go. Look, I would have rather that been solved through impeachment, not through like criminal courts. But if we're talking about the principle here, um, I think that there are examples where hard cases make bad law that actually mitigate against free speech maximalism. And the reason I brought up the Colorado thing, it touches more on guns than it does on free speech. But um, I don't know if you followed it, but there's this, you know, this couple that was charged with negligent homicide because their son was seriously mentally disturbed. He was writing on math tests how he's going to kill everybody. He was writing about, you know, in his journal and writing notes or whatever, saying that uh, when he kills everybody, he wants to first target um, some young girl who's got everything going for her um, and her life looks great just so she knows how, how lonely and miserable I am. And this kid's parents were, were, they intervened with the parents many times and they let this kid have access to a gun anyway. And so, first of all, uniquely craptacular parents. But moreover, I just instinctually despise the idea of charging parents for anything that their kids do. But the question I ask myself is, what if, what if it wasn't parents? What if it was the headmaster of a boarding school? And you had the same sort of obvious warnings about and red flags about this kid who was just screaming, I'm going to become a serial killer or a mass a school shooter. Um, and the principal did nothing, laughed it off, shrugged it off, still let the kid have access to a gun. Seems to me that that would be criminally prosecutable too. The reason I bring it up is just because I think foreseeableness, reasonable foreseeableness is a factor that should be taken into account when we, we think about, you know, principles like not prosecuting parents for the sins of their children or not prosecuting people for their speech. I think this comes down to a broader difference between us, which is that in many respects, I am more of a small L liberal squish than you. I think you and I probably could have the same conversation on criminal justice. Am I wrong? You it depends are, on the specifics, but probably. <laughs> well, right. I mean, I, I, forgive me if I'm misquoting you here, but I'm fairly sure that you are more bothered by that line about, you know, what rather one... Rather 30 guilty yes. men walk free than one innocent man, right? I, I, I am the other way around. I would always want these rules written so that they tilted the other way if they have to. So if we're talking about five degrees when it comes to guns or free speech or criminal justice or what you will, dispositionally, I lean towards the 
one that is less likely to catch people in the net than the one that is likely to catch people in the net. Yeah, that's, that's I think that's a perfectly legitimate point of disagreement between us. Let's put it this way. I you ever see the movie Minority Report? Yes. Okay, so they went to great pains to make it sound like it was obvious that the concept of pre-crime was obviously a, a horrendous affront to all human decency. And if I buy into the the stipulations of the movie, you have to agree with that. That said, if you actually had the ability to predict with scientific perfection, right? I mean, they had to sort of unravel that thesis, which, which they had at the beginning. But let's just say you had it, right? That you had the ability to predict what was going to happen in the next 24 hours. Stopping people before they murdered somebody would be an obvious obligation, never mind social good. Now, that doesn't mean you charge them with murder because they didn't murder anybody. But you intervene with them in a way that uh, prevents the murder and it maybe seeks to get these people help in some way. You don't have to have the criminal punishment. I personally, you know, believe that the, the criminal justice system is vital and important. And I know you agree with me on this, that these, these sort of uh, common good constitutionalism people who constantly throw stink on the liberal order as being neutral are stealing enormous bases. The right to confront your accuser is not a neutral thing. It is a profound moral good. The right to a fair trial is a profound moral good. All of these things are, are deeply hard-won lessons that are baked into the liberal order, and they are morally good. They are not neutral. That said, one of the reasons why we have the system we have is not to make it harder to convict guilty people. It's to ensure that we don't convict innocent people. And if there are ways to find it, to make it easier and better that don't needlessly infringe upon people's rights and livelihoods and, and freedom to make it easier to, to find and convict guilty people, I'm all in favor of them. I mean, I think it was a huge advantage that we did DNA testing and blood testing and fingerprinting. Those are all good things. My worry though, is that in an ad hoc attempt to get Donald Trump for something, and I agree with you that he should have been impeached, but he wasn't. That in an ad hoc attempt to get him for something, we will set up a new standard. In this hypothetical, there would be a Supreme Court case about his conviction. And the Supreme Court would say Brandenburg is overruled and in its place we have to have a foreseeable Standard. Yep. So that's that's totally fair. That is a totally and fair. Then you know, what I, do I, we I have hate, for I, the little guy who is suddenly burdened by this foreseeable standard that I think is less workable. That's my worry. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely fair. I think all examples of Trump law are horrible. Um, I think that the 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 brag thing is is is, is really bad news. Um, I do think Trump played us all for suckers with this. I'm going to be yeah, indicted on Tuesday thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I agree with you. I, I wouldn't want to make any of these changes in response to Trump. I think that would be not worth the squeeze would not be worth the juice <laughs> to borrow a phrase. <laughs> um, I, I know you got to go. Um, um, thank you so much for doing this. No, thanks for having I appreciate me. it. Yeah. And hey, can I ask you a question? I'll, I'll cut out this question. If it's a problem, do you have like something in your mouth? Do you have like, uh, Swollen lip 
or is it just the audio of your phone that is giving you a slight sort of lisp? I hope it's the audio of my phone. Well, my voice has changed since this morning. Yeah, it's weird because I mean, I, I literally drove home from the cigar shop listening to the editor's podcast and I was listening to you talk and you sounded like Charlie Cook I've known for a decade now or whatever. But there's something about your voice on this and I, I just know I'm going to get an email from people about it and may, maybe Adam will fix it in post. But you should just know that there is some distortion that's coming. That's a, it sounds like you have a cough drop or something in your mouth. Yeah, I'm afraid not. Use, it's it's weird. Um, all right, that's good to know. I, I I would hate to find out that you were just like. Well, let me ask you this: Do you smell burnt hair? <laughs> Are you? <laughs> no, and I haven't been beaten up on the streets either. Uh, okay, so you haven't. You're not having a stroke. You haven't forgotten the letter H or anything like no. that. Okay, so it's it's an audio thing. All right. So, uh, uh, Charlie Cook, thank you so much for joining the room. No, thanks for having me. Okay, um, again, just uh, enormous thanks to Charlie for uh, for leaping um, on the grenade um, for me at a moment, literally at a moment's notice, to come on and do it. And it is a, a sign not only that um, he's a mensch, but that he's he's um, he's very good on his feet. I should be very clear that all disagreements with him about the gun stuff you should direct towards him. Uh, I mentioned this thing about him sounding like he has a lisp. It may just be a function of the connection that he had, but since he was locally recorded, you may not hear it. So you may think that I'm the one who's got some sort of a brain malfunction on this. So we'll see. Um, but it was, it was weirdly distracting for me. And, um, um, so now I'm, I'm really curious to see whether it makes it. And, uh, I look forward to releasing the conversation with John Ward so thanks to everybody for indulging this. Uh, literally, I had no idea up until three minutes before we were doing this that we were going to do it. So if I missed something in the news or missed a point that we should have talked about, I apologize. But thanks again to Charlie for doing this. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.